You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. To the past and you are listening to For the Love of History podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Can you feel it? That chill in the air? That slight smell of pumpkin coming from an unknown location? It is officially October 1st and the first day of the spooky season. I have no words. No words to describe how excited I am for this season of spooky. And this very, very fitting episode that you chose for today. So, let's get on to it. What do death masks, the Great Depression, public reenactments of disembowelment, and Disney have in common? Well, our topic today, of course, which is haunted houses. I know it seems like I just threw a bunch of random spooky stuff together, but I promise you, my friend, they are all connected, and I am ready to tell you about it. So, Get your favorite pumpkin-flavored snack and a good pair of fuzzy socks, and let's get to it. Why do we like to get scared? Why do we choose to listen to spooky podcasts when we're home alone? Why do we do things to ourselves like watch all of the Saw movies with the blood and the guts and the gore, even though we dropped out of nursing school and changed to a history degree because we couldn't stand the sight of needles. Or, uh, or was, was that just me? <laughs> but seriously, what is our obsession with blood, guts, horror, and jump scares? Why do we pay lots of money to basically get the bejesus scared out of us? I have no idea why. But human beings have been doing this for, like, ever. Egyptians would use dummies, moving walls, snakes, and booby traps to keep tomb raiders away by scaring them. The Greeks and Romans, who had super rich theater cultures, would perform their incredibly creepy and messed up mythology on stages using special effects, fake blood, gore, and other monsters to keep people interested and coming back for more. Early Christians also used horror theater to warn people of their gruesome fate should their soul be overtaken by the devil. But this kind of backfired a little bit but because people were super into the devilish, creepy stuff that the church was performing. But anyways. <laughs> so as you can see, human beings have loved the spooky for a long time. But they weren't really into haunted houses or that side of spooky yet. This would come later as a result of one very creepy girl and a bunch of pissed-off French people. What do you mean, TK? Well, this is what I mean. Picture this. It's 1789, and a bunch of people in France are pissed. 
with the rich French people, namely the monarchs and his family and the bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie? Bourgeoisie. I don't know. Anyways, the regular French people started just chopping, chopping heads off and putting them all over the place, displaying them on pikes, as one does in a revolution. This is cool. Whatever. Nothing to see here. Just another revolution in another country. Until one day, a young girl who is a French loyalist decides she needs to climb up on one of these poles and grab herself a head to preserve the faces 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 of the bourgeoisie in the form of death masks this creepy little wednesday adams girl was none other than marie tussaud known later in life as madame tussaud you know the wax figures, you know, of famous people. I know, right? I was shocked, too, to find out that the lady who has a museum in Las Vegas and all over the world actually started off as a very creepy young child. Little Marie got her stardom by creating death masks of beheaded French royalty. And dear Lord, did she make a lot of them. But as a loyalist to the French crown, she wasn't safe in France. So in 1802, she packed up her death masks and went to London. There, she set up a little house of horrors featuring eerie, lifelike, very realistic wax figures of people, including King Louis XV, 16th, I'm sorry, Marie Antoinette, Marat, and Robespierre. She called this place the Chamber of Horrors. And Mary, girl made bank. I mean, her name was all over London during the time and continues to be all over the world. And now her legacy lives on in Madame Tussauds, TM, locations that are literally all over the world. But here's the important thing about all of this. The Chamber of Horrors was the first time people had paid money to Enter a house, or rather a chamber, in this case, to take part in a horror event. Not a play, but rather a very immersive, somewhat interactive horror program, if you will. Now, haunted houses wouldn't immediately pop off, but this did lay the foundation for an industry all around the procurement of scares and screams for lovers of the macabre. Things wouldn't really advance much more than this until the early 1900s when, once again, in Paris, it was up to its old gruesome shiznit. The Grand Guignol Theater was taking note of people's love of being absolutely freaked out and decided to create on-stage depictions of graphic dismemberment. The theater's director, Max Moray, boasted that he judged each performance by the number of people who passed out, shocked and in awe in the audience. Another distant cousin of The Haunted House was created in 1915 when an English fairground in Lip Hook debuted one of the first ghost houses where people could walk through and get the ever-living poop scared out of them. And I cannot help but imagine all of these very properly Edwardian-dressed people just getting their pants scared off <laughs> in this 
ghost house. I mean, have you seen Edwardian dresses? <laughs> People looked like giant S's. It's how did they walk? <laughs> Anyways, I'm I'm gonna post a picture of a woman wearing an Edwardian dress because I absolutely hate them. And it's just funny to think about. Anyways, moving on, I digress. At this point, people's hunger for the gruesome and the macabre was insatiable. People were digging Halloween, loving getting dressed up, going to parties in their terrible dresses, and checking out the local spooky garden or macabre room on display. All of that just eating it up. They loved it. And then boom, Great Depression, Dust Bowl. Lots of people with no jobs and no expendable income for things like getting your scare on during Halloween. But a group of boys, a metal fence on top of a house, and a burned down school and a few dead people would change all of that. Halloween used to have all tricks and no treats. And by tricks, I mean hordes of young men that would roam the streets pulling pranks on people. Irish immigrants had carried over the Halloween tradition of pranking to the United States, but they weren't really super serious pranks at that time, just funny and honestly weird stuff. One of the most popular was to disassemble a neighbor's front gate and reassemble it on top of a building. <laughs> and it was so common that some people called Halloween gate night. But by the 1920s and 30s, teenage boys had turned from like cute little pranksters to full-on menaces to society and almost killing people. In fact, actually killing people. They broke streetlights, they set fires, they tied wires across sidewalks to trip people. And in 1939, a little girl in Tacoma Park, Maryland, almost lost an arm after being hit with a stone by Halloween pranksters. Another man nearly lost his eyesight after he was hit in the face with a stone. In Fairfax County, Virginia, in 1929, a group of boys set off dynamite on their school grounds. And another group caused a huge car accident by putting boards and a large stone into the road and then covering it up with freaking leaves. Thankfully, no one died during this incident, but a similar prank in Wacoogan, Illinois, killed three people. Things were just getting out of control, and people were dying for goodness sakes. According to Lisa Morton, author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, they were costing cities millions of dollars, even in the early 30s. Cities were basically being held hostage during Halloween by teenagers who were now killing people. Doesn't this sound like the start of like a really good scary movie though? Or like of a YA dystopia fiction novel? Instead of the Hunger Games, it's the Halloween Games. <laughs> I'd read that book. These boys needed an outlet. Something to keep them off the streets. Less tricks and more treats. People began referring to Halloween as Black Halloween. Similarly to the way they referred to the stock market crash four years earlier as Black Tuesday. 
But thankfully, somebody had the brilliant idea to throw the kids a party. Awesome. Love it. Bribe the children. (laughs) Which, as a second grade teacher, I can totally understand and appreciate. So, neighborhoods decided to throw huge block parties. And I hear you. I hear you loud and clear, my friend. Our time-traveling telepathic connection is very strong. And I know you're thinking, TK, isn't this the Great Depression? Don't people have no money? And you're right, my genius little geranium. You are correct. Indeed, it is the time of no monies. So how were people going to throw huge neighborhood parties? Well, they did it with neighborhood coordination and the power of DIY. Neighbors pooled their resources together and organized events called house-to-house parties, where the entire block would coordinate the first trick-or-treat events. At the first house, you would get a costume, maybe like a sheet to be a ghost. Maybe somebody would paint little whiskers on your on your face. Then the next house might give you some candy. And then the next house might have a ghost walk or a haunted room. And then the next house would have more treats or games or something. From these house-to-house parties, more trick-or-treating parties, costume parades, and yes, haunted houses popped up and just exploded in popularity. See, here is one of my favorite things about Halloween. The DIY ability of the whole holiday. No costume idea? Throw on some black clothes? Draw whiskers on your face? Boom, you're a cat. No access to human organs for your little ghost room? Boil spaghetti. Put it in a bowl. Boom, bowl full of worms and or guts. No decorations? Grab some paper. You got yourself the best freaking medium to make a ghost. It's amazing. My brother's birthday is October 28th, and he always had a Halloween-themed birthday because of the dates. My brother's birthday is October 28th, and we always had a Halloween-themed birthday for him because of the date's proximity to said holiday and because of my bubby's innate love for all things spooky and creepy. He's got a scythe tattooed on his face and a centipede on his neck, but he will give you the shirt off his back. (laughs) He's amazing. But anyways, we DIY'd almost all of those birthdays. And they were early 2000s birthdays, so you know they were real good and real cringe. (laughs) But I digress. Even though it was the Great Depression, people went all out with their house-to-house Halloween parties and haunted houses. They came together as a community to make these things happen. A 1937 party pamphlet article gave its, its readers some great DIY advice, which I just have to read to you. They wrote, hang old furs or strips of raw liver on the walls where one feels their way through dark spaces. And then they go on to give other advice like, create a trail of terror. Use weird moans and howls to come from dark corners. Also, use damp sponges and hairnets hung from ceilings to touch their faces. Doorways should be blocked so that guests must crawl through a long, dark tunnel. (laughs) I mean, it was a regular blasty blast. These house-to-house parties were 
quickly becoming a hit and getting bigger and bigger and actually turned into a really great way to fundraise. And this is where we see our first professional haunted houses popping up. In particular, nonprofit organizations started hosting haunted houses. There was one group that was just killing the haunted house game. The United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs, which was which is a leadership group for training of people between the ages of 18 and 40, which is not important at all, but I thought I'd tell you. They went very hard on the Halloween shenanigans and haunted houses. And by the 1970s, it was said that the Jaycees had a haunted house in every city in the United States. People were making how-to books for haunted houses. Volunteer groups have huge meetings to organize these haunted houses as they were actually being called now and women's magazines all over the U.S. were writing up articles on how to be the perfect haunted house hostess with the mostest but haunted houses were not yet a cultural icon they weren't synonymous with Halloween yet there was only one force in the world strong enough to weave haunted houses into the very fabric of American culture. And that force was Walt motherfucking Disney. The year is 1961, and Mr. Disney begins construction on what would be one of the most successful haunted houses in the world. The Haunted Mansion was actually dreamed up by Walty Boy before the construction of the actual park itself, but he decided to hold off until the right moment to start construction and to open the attraction. The mansion was worked on for eight years, and Mr. Disney himself wouldn't actually be able to see the final product. All sorts of creative people were brought into the project, and the technology and special effects were unlike any that had ever been seen. As cool as the liver nailed to the wall and wet sponges hanging from the ceiling were, they really, they didn't stand a chance against that Disney money and engineering. These nonprofit DIY haunted houses were just declining at a rapid rate. And the final nail in the coffin for nonprofit DIYs was when a fire broke out at one of their haunted houses in New Jersey and trapped and killed eight teenagers. After that terrible accident, attractions were just shut down. Volunteer organizations struggled to compete against new competition under much tougher rules, and soon most of them were forced out of business leaving bigger companies like Disney to have full reign over the haunted market. In 1969, the haunted mansion was finally completed. Its crown jewel was the Grand Hall, a 90-foot-long ballroom sequence of dancing ghouls and ghosts and goblins at a birthday party. These were actually projected illusions and not mannequins covered in a bedsheet. The illusion was created by a man named John Pepper, who used a series of projections and mirrors to make it look like actual translucent people were dancing all around. 
And a fun little side note, these illusions and these, these projected ghosts were actually called Pepper's Ghosts, which I think is really cute. Anyways, Disneyland's Haunted Mansion opened in 1969, and on the first day, more than 82,000 people passed through the Haunted Mansion, which is absolutely banana sandwich. What? The mansion is still a hit now and has variations all over the world. I've been to the one here in Japan, and boy, let me tell you, it was very, uh, very much not scary <laughs> because it was all in my second language in Japanese. And, and I'll be honest, having to translate the spookiness in my brain made it way less scary. But it was still really, really cool, and the special effects were amazing. And if you come to Japan, I highly recommend it because it's super cool. But anyways... Nonprofit and volunteer haunted houses were just simply pushed out after this. Of course, they still happen today, but the commercial haunted house business really took off after the launch of Disney's Haunted Mansion and the weird surge of horror films in the 80s. As slasher movies like Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Friday the 13th became more and more popular, haunted houses did too. The popularity of slasher films increased the demand for horror entertainment of the same bloody, gory variety. According to Larry Kitchener, president of the Haunted House Association, if you went to a haunted house in the 1980s and 90s, you would have seen a lot of Freddy Krueger, Jason, and Pinheads. The haunted house industry really followed the movie industry at that time. The two industries fueled one another. As movies would get scarier, so would haunted houses. As haunted houses got darker, so would movies. It was a constant back and forth, and even today. Mr. Larry Kitchener estimates that there are roughly 2,700 haunted houses operating nationwide in the U.S. And a large haunted house attraction can reportedly earn three million dollars during the Halloween season and the industry itself is worth 300 million dollars according to NBC. The haunted house game just keeps getting stronger and scarier with places like McKinney Manor in Huntsville, Alabama where you can't enter unless you're 21 years or older or Blackout in New York where you have to submit a waiver and, a, and list all of your fears so that the haunted house can make a bespoke, scary experience for you. But as eternal as the haunted house may seem, they may not be here forever. In fact, according to many haunted house experts, they would be surprised if haunted houses made it another 50 years. So you better get your spook on while you still can. So we have come to our final thought, my spooky little ghoul friend. And this one is kind of out of left field, but I just need you to know about this. Just in case you're a horror lover like myself. There is a haunted house association. And it's not just for people who run haunted houses, but people who love scary attractions. On their website, it says... 
The Haunted House Association is a website that is dedicated to helping advance, promote, and educate the world about haunted house and the Halloween industry. They've got America's scariest haunted house videos. They have forums. They have scary attractions events lists. And they've got history of haunted houses on there too. Literally anything and everything that you need or want to know about haunted houses is on the website. And I highly recommend checking it out. Especially the haunted house videos because you can get spooked, but you can also be in your house and hide under your blanket at the same time. That is all she wrote, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed the episode, please tell a friend or share a For the Love of History post on your social medias because that is the number one way people find podcasts through word of mouth. So you can help other people find the love in history. If you'd like to support the podcast in another way, you can join Patreon where I'll be posting bonus episodes of the topics that lost in this round of voting. As a patron, you also have access to the friend-only stories on Instagram, merch discounts, stickers, and much more for just $2 a month. And if you're looking for a way to make a one-time donation, you can follow the link in my bio to help support the Books and Beverage Fund. Help me stay caffeinated so that I can make the best possible content for you. And as always, you can find pictures of this episode on Instagram where we have lots of fun stuff. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here. So until next time, please eat some candy corn, drink your water, do something that makes you happy, my friend, and I will see you on October 15th to talk about the Japanese school of witchcraft and wizardry. Okay, bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs>